0: Well, good morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 22. i are be looking at a few verses in this chapter this morning. I'm not a handy person. Some of you out there are very handy. Um, not good with tools. I don't know how to fix a lot of things. Uh, and so I was curious when my, uh, I opened up my toolbox that I was given when I was a, a young man, and I found... Uh, this tool in the toolbox, I don't know if you can see it on the screen there, I brought, actually brought it with me today, um, uh, a wrench, I don't know if the screen's there, it's, it's a wrench I thought, right, and so uh, as a young man I thought I'd go around the house and I would work to try to repair things with my wrench. It was an unusual wrench, it had all kinds of different parts on it and it was a little flexible and did strange things, but I just tried to use it as a wrench, and if the screws or things that I was working on didn't didn't fit, that was too bad. And I went out and got a different wrench. Well, a little bit later, somebody explained to me what was unusual about this wrench that I had in my toolbox. Uh, it's not actually a wrench, they said, it's a vice grip. I said, Well, what in the world is a vice grip? Can someone please explain that to me? Because I'd never understood what this little thing was here on the end, and that if you twist it. It actually, uh, it actually makes the, the surface bigger that you can work with, and you can actually then use the power to clamp onto things and hold them. Or you can use it as a wrench, or you can use it to hold things. And that was like an astonishing discovery to me, that this thing that I thought was a wrench for so long actually had all kinds of purposes. Now, in addition to using it as a wrench, I sometimes, because it had quite a large metal surface on it right here, I used it as a hammer as well. <laughs> And you can see marks on it because to me it was like, wow, it's kind of like a hammer. I might as well use it as a hammer. Um, So maybe you guys have had uh, your own uh, issues with tools that look unusual in the toolbox at your house. But I I just bring that up today because I sometimes think about this when I think about the law. Um, The law of God and how we make sense of the law of God. What are we supposed to do with what we find in the law? How do we use it? Properly, what is the right way to employ the law in the life of a Christian? And uh, if that's ever been a question for you, if you've ever struggled with that to try to understand that, then our prayer today is that in some way what we talk about today will be helpful to you in that way. Um, The middle of the book of Deuteronomy is full of law. We had the Ten Commandments at the at the beginning. That's the moral law of God. We get to the book of leviticus and it describes what people often describe as the ceremonial law of god the religious law of god but most of the middle toward the end of deuteronomy has to do with the civil law the judicial law of god for his people israel and so instead of preaching through every single one of these texts we decided we're going to accelerate A little bit through the middle of Deuteronomy and just focus today on how we are to properly read and understand this part of the Bible. Uh, And what what I want you to see as we look at Deuteronomy 22 in a few verses here is this, the law of God is good. It is a good thing, but only when it is used according to Scripture. The law of God is good, but only when it's used according to Scripture. So if you look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 22 this morning, I'm just going to read three verses as kind of an illustration of what we're talking about as we get into this topic of the law. So would you listen as I read? This is God's holy, inerrant, and abiding word. And this is what it says to us in verses 5, 8, and 11 of Deuteronomy chapter 22. Verse 5. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Verse 8, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. And then, um, a little bit later in the chapter, um, uh, in verse uh, 20, uh, 20, chapter 2, verse 11, you shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. This ends the reading of God's Word. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, help us. Uh, these laws uh, seem distant in some ways from us and very close in others. And we pray that we'll have help from your spirit today as we listen to your word. Bless me as I do my best to try to convey what we do with this. In Jesus' name, amen. There are, as I said a moment ago, three overarching um, categories of law in the Old Testament. There's the moral law, that's the Ten Commandments, the ceremonial law. That's the law that has to do with the temple and sacrifices and the job of the priests, and then there's the civil law, uh, the judicial law of Israel, and uh, it's easy to kind of think that these things are very distinct from one another, but the difficulty is that sometimes they overlap with each other, and there are some limitations to try to understand uh, exactly which laws fit in which categories. As an example, for instance, the Sabbath, it's one of the Ten Commandments, But there's all kinds of rules and laws about how Israel was supposed to do that and the application of that in terms of their religion. it's like, where exactly do we put the Sabbath law uh, in the Old Testament? So what I'd like to do is just take a minute to try to explain these three verses that we just read and then kind of go beyond that to think a little bit more in detail about how we read the law in general and try to explain to you why I think it's significant for us Maybe especially right now. So, first of all, Deuteronomy chapter 22, and verse 5. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. We read that verse and it feels very real to us in the modern world. Because what it's talking about in the context of Israel at this point was people who would present themselves as this sex that they were not. Sometimes that could be something like cross-dressing, or in the modern world, it's these issues of transgenderism. When we read a law like that in the Old Testament, and we say, yes, amen, that law was put in place by the Creator to uphold His creation ordinances, to hold the world together so that it functioned well in the way that He intended to honor it. And so when we read it here as New Testament people, we are very happy and willing to repeat it and say this is the truth of what God has said to His people, to everyone, over the course of all history. And so that law, it feels to us in some way like the moral law of God, even though it's not one of the Ten Commandments. The second verse that I read from uh, verse 8, which says this, "You, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Now this is a civil law of Israel and it was designed because in that day and age, people had flat roofs and their flat roof was like our deck. And so they would go up onto the flat roof and they would do things as a family on their flat roof. They may entertain guests. They may sleep up there. Their children would be up there. And as a result of that, it was incumbent upon the Israelites to place a protection around the edge of a flat roof so that people didn't accidentally tumble off. It was good and right to do that. If you didn't do that, you were breaking the civil and judicial laws of Israel and you were subject to the appropriate punishments in the nation of Israel. Now, uh, we read this law today and we go, you know what? I get it. That's a good idea. Although we, most of us, don't have flat roofs. We don't use parapets. But I get what it's saying. There's wisdom in this that we as New Testament people should not endanger people when we're doing new building projects we should make our homes and the places that people dwell and the buildings they're in safe we don't want uh, to be irresponsible with those things and so we read it and we go yeah it's good but it's not exactly binding in the same way you're not going to get you're not going to get brought into jail if you don't have a parapet on your roof the third law in genesis chapter or uh deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 11 Uh, says this, you shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. Now, aside from the fact that many of you have broken this law today um, already, maybe I have, I don't know, um, we read this and we're like, hmm, yeah, okay, let's just keep going, you know, and it's like, You pass over a law like this, and you're like, I don't quite understand what the big deal was. Now, a lot of biblical scholars are like, "Eh, we're not entirely sure exactly what the big deal was here, though some say it might have had something to do with the religious garments that the Egyptian priests wore in the worship of pagan gods. And the Israelites coming out of Egypt shouldn't dress like them. And so you could say, well, I guess I can see in some way we shouldn't kind of dress or wear garments that kind of underline or point to pagan ideas or rituals but it just doesn't seem to apply to us today and so we kind of pass over verse 11 and we just say that's no longer relevant to us in the modern world. Now in, in looking at these three verses what I want you to see as we look at them is that they all kind of beg a question for us as Christians and that is Does the Old Testament law still apply to Christians and to the societies in which we live? Should we be reading the Old Testament law and trying to make it uh, relevant in the modern world? Now, there's four views about this, okay? Uh, The first view is the general secular view, and it basically says no. The answer to this question is no, uh, because the Bible is not factual. It's a cultural artifact, And we shouldn't read it in any way different than we would read Dr. Seuss. It doesn't have any application at all. You should just dismiss it. That's a secular view. Then you have what maybe some would call the liberal Christian view of the law, and it's basically this. Well, you can read those things privately as a Christian, but don't try to bring them into society. Don't try to make them a part of modern society. And boy, for sure, if you're a politician, keep your religious views private. They don't matter in the public square. So it's a little bit of a kind of a liberal Christian reading of the law. A more classic reading of the law for Christians is this. The moral law of God, which is summed up in the Ten Commandments, is still binding on everyone everywhere in terms of the accountability they have before God. In other words, God is still making a judgment on humanity and human beings based upon the truths in His moral law. And when we say we have fallen short of the glory of God, it's describing the ways that we have failed to live up to the holiness of God as described in the moral law. And so it still is binding, but the ceremonial law has been fulfilled in Jesus we read that verse earlier. He is the temple. He is the great high priest. He is the Lamb of God. And so the ceremonial laws don't apply anymore. And the civil law has expired for the people of God. It was relevant to the Israelites, but it has now expired. Our confession of faith says it this way. I think the words are on the screen. The moral law does forever bind all, both justified persons and others to the obedience thereof and this not only in regard to the matter contained in it but also in respect of the authority of god the creator who gave it neither doth christ in the gospel in any way dissolve but much strengthen this obligation to the israelites as a body politic he gave sundry judicial laws civil laws which expired together with the state of that people not obliging any other now further than the general equity thereof may require in other words there are some principles in them that are helpful but we cannot apply them in specific to the modern world that we live in that's the classic christian view the classic understanding of how we understand the law of god now there is a curious case within christianity of a fourth view And this view is sometimes called theonomy. And just to be clear about terminology, it's a simple word taken from two other words, theos, God, namas, law. So theonomy means God's law. Theonomy takes a different perspective. Theonomy is the belief that God's moral and civil law are still binding, and should be the law of all nations, which Christians must labor to put in place. That is the view of theonomy. And I'm going to come back to theonomy in a moment and explain what their convictions are and why I think they're wrong. Um, But why am I talking about this? Well, we're talking about it because the middle of Deuteronomy is full of law, But I'm also gonna talk about it today because there is a new ally of theonomy in the modern world. This is very relevant to us because the great new ally of theonomy is a view called Christian nationalism. Now before everyone goes crazy, let me first tell you what Christian nationalism isn't. And I want you to listen very carefully to me today, okay? because I think some of you may want to come and argue with me, but listen to what I'm saying, okay? Christian nationalism is not patriotism. Being a patriot and loving your country is not Christian nationalism. Neither is it a conviction that America is degrading morally and that we Christians should do everything we can to help our country to see the error of its ways. That's not Christian nationalism either. Neither is it engaging in the political sphere and advocating for ideas and laws that would be good to make America a better place. That's not Christian nationalism. At this point, you're saying, Pastor, what is Christian nationalism? Well, it's very hard to define, but let me me cut to the chase on the most basic thing I want you to understand about it today. Christian nationalism is the belief that God has ordained in the Bible a special place for America within His redemptive plans for the world. That America is Israel in the modern world. That's Christian nationalism. It believes America is the fulfillment of everything God said to Israel. And that's based, they would say, on passages like Psalm thirty-three, twelve, which says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. And so what a Christian nationalist does is they take Psalm thirty-three, twelve, and they say, not that it applies to any nation and people, and by the way, nation means ethnos, people, It doesn't apply to anyone in that they they should honor God or make the Lord their God. It applies specifically to America. They say God did this first with the Jews, and he's doing it now with America. And so Christian nationalism of late has started to have a dance with theonomy. And this idea of making God's laws, not just the moral law, but the civil law, the law of America. And we are all observing and watching the effects of this in the world that we live in. So Christian nationalism, to be clear, equates modern America and its Christian leaders and its political leaders with ancient Israel and its religious leaders and civil leaders, and basically lays the template of ancient Israel over the top of America and believes that we in America today need a modern prophet, or, they use this word, Messiah, to save us. This is an opportune moment for these two movements, who... In the past, we may not have noticed each other, but now we're saying, ah, together we have more power. If we can get Christians to believe what theonomy is, then we will have achieved our end of making America a Christian nation. Now, uh, why am I talking about this today? Well, as I said, because it's come up in Deuteronomy, because we have to understand what we do with the law or else we can go off track very easily. I'm also talking about it because in the New Testament, Paul, in exhorting Timothy, a preacher, said this to him, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. I feel a burden this week to do what Paul told Timothy to do. And that is to speak out against something that I perceive to be very, very dangerous, not just for the country, but for the church and for Christian people. And that is melding together our political views with our understanding of the Bible, and making them the same thing. Now, let's talk about theonomy a little bit more, and this is not a comprehensive overview of theonomy. Theonomy has a lot of good things about it, a lot of things that you and I would nod our head in agreement about. The first good thing about theonomy is it's based in many ways on what 1 Timothy 1.8 says. I printed this earlier in the bulletin. It's kind of the main point of this sermon 1 Timothy 1.8 says, Now we know, and he's speaking to the New Testament Christians, Paul is, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So Paul recognizes that the issue of the law is an enduring issue for Christian people. And he wants to underline for them that even in the age of the gospel and after the coming of Christ, it doesn't mean that the law is bad or evil or wrong. It remains for us a good thing in as many ways as a good thing can be a good thing, but only, he warns, if one uses it lawfully. That means according to, way, to the way that the Scripture wants us to use it, especially after the coming of Christ. Now, theonomists read that, and they go, ah, of course, the way God wants us to lawfully use the law is to make the civil law applicable in the modern world. And the more classic Christian understanding is that's a misreading of it. That's a poor use of the law. So we both agree that the law is good, but we have a different understanding of the way that that's supposed to be worked out in society. The second thing that we agree with theonomists on is that the law cannot save. So the gospel is best. Every theonomist I've ever read underlines the fact that the gospel is what saves us. They don't believe that the law saves any more than you and I would say that the law saves, but they do think the law should be the civil law of the land still, and most Christians would disagree with them. In fact, this is where uh, they go off the reservation from what the traditional convictions that Reformation people have had, because if you remember when I read the Westminster Confession of Faith, it said to the To them also, the Israelites, as a body politic, he gave sundry judicial laws which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any other now further than the general equity thereof may require. And the theonomist reads that, and they said, sorry, I think the Westminster Confession is wrong. They believe the civil law, the judicial law of Israel, and the penalties of it should still apply in the modern world. Now, if you say, well, you're just saying this, what do they say? Um, I'm going to put up three quotes from maybe the, the best-known theonomist. He's, no, he's, a, he's passed away, but his name was Greg Bonson. He actually taught at a Reformed seminary before he lost his, his job there. But this is some quotes from Greg Bonson. In short, it is the civil magistrate's proper function that's the government the government's proper function and duty to obey the scriptures dictates regarding crime and its punishment unless god reveals otherwise then all civil magistrates today must be guided and regulated by those laws civil magistrates today are under obligation to execute not that doesn't mean do that means put to death all those who commit capital crimes as defined by God's authoritative law which would include rape incest homosexuality resisting your parents and many other things like that they go on he goes on to say theonomists are committed to the transformation or reconstruction of every area of life including the institutions and affairs of the socio-political realm in accordance with the holy principles of God's revealed word. And so you can see the difference. Christians believe the moral law is still in effect. They believe it is the work of the church to advocate for the truth of the moral law, to convince and persuade people of the truth of God's righteous standards, but not to compel everyone to operate under the judicial laws of Israel. And that's a very different view than theonomy. And it's a very different view than what some theonomists and Christian nationalists are saying today. So a few things uh, about the main problems with theonomy. I've I've covered it. I'm going to try to go real quick. And if you want my notes later, uh, I'll be happy to give them to you. What are the problems with this view? Number one, They make modern America the same as Israel without biblical justification. Now look, we believe that Israel was a unique people that God had called to do a unique thing in salvation history. And that over time when Christ came, the church became the continuation of that people as the new Israel. And that the things that were true about the old Israel, the national identity of that people, were transferred into this new strain of people that were international called the church, and the church was to do the work of God in society. This group goes beyond that and says, no, it's not the church, it's America, okay? Second thing, they seem to believe that the law, if fully applied, will do what the New Testament writers themselves said that it couldn't. Romans chapter 3 and Galatians 2, for by the works of the law, No human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The law's job is not in the modern world to structure the order of society. The moral law is to bring conviction of sin. He goes on in Galatians chapter 2, through the law, Paul says, I died to the law so that I might live to God in relationship with Him. The third thing, they fail to acknowledge the subjectivism inherent in applying the civil law code of the Old Testament in a completely foreign context. Go back to the passage I read on the parapets on the roof. Theonomists would say, well, you know, we don't have flat roofs anymore. They would agree in some ways, but they would say, you know, the penal sanctions that God gave to those people should be put in place in the same exact way. But you ask, well, for what exact violations? And they're like, well, we have to do more work on that. And so the point there is they they don't have an answer for how subjective the application of these things are. Fourthly, they missed the Bible's whole point. That progress in faith wasn't to produce more external law. It was to create a law in our heart. Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel wasn't to produce a massive catalog of more external law. It was to change the hearts of people so that in relationship they longed for God. Another reason, they disempower the church from bringing moral accountability through voluntary relationships by shifting the instruction about and the enforcement of the moral law to the state. Because if the penal sanctions of the law and the laws themselves are to be maintained by the civil magistrate, that means the mayor, the governor, senators, congressmen, presidents, are supposed to not only tell you what the law is and what it's for from the Old Testament, even if they don't believe it, and then enforce it according to scriptural standards. That's not going to work. And we wouldn't want it working. We would rather, I think, have the law of God explicated clearly by people in the church who understand and have a relationship with God about what the meaning of it is. Another one there, Christian nationalist allies, the allies of theonomy, misuse the name of Christ for political ends. Um... I'm gonna put up a picture, it may be disturbing to you, and I really wrestled with whether or not to put this picture up, but I'm gonna put it up. It's a book recently come out by a man named Helgard Mueller, and you see the title, President Donald J. Trump, The Son of Man, The Christ. There are billboards going up around this country Saying similar things. This isn't a critique of a particular candidate. It is a critique of a view that is blasphemous. And we Christians have to be extraordinarily careful aligning ourselves with views like this in the way that we operate in society. I'm going to uh, quote Al Moeller. Uh, as one other critique of this view, he basically argues that this group of people is seeking to import the ethics of the kingdom of the new heaven and new earth into our current world. He says, this is a little bit of a long quote, I'm sorry, the deliberate subversion of that Christian foundation in America has created a set of conditions in which the American constitutional order is increasingly implausible. So he's agreeing, we got big problems. I'm also certain that the theonomist confusion of categories will certainly fail to bring about the society they envision were they to gain control. I stalwartly insist that conversion is normative for the Christian and for the church. I long for the rule of Christ and the saints. I believe such a rule will one day come in fullness, but that day will be announced with the blast of a trumpet and not a conference on theonomy. And lastly, I'd say these people have missed the lesson of history. One more picture for you. You won't know exactly who this person is, but he was Constantine, the emperor of Rome, who was converted to Christianity. And soon after his conversion, what happened was they issued the Edict of Milan, which was religious freedom in the Roman Empire. But most people that were pagans when he was converted, converted to Christianity not because they believed it, but because the big boss said he was a Christian. That's a problem. That will not create the conditions for reigniting a heart for God in our country. People have to fall on their knees, repent, call on the name of Jesus, and be saved. And then their lives look different. It doesn't work the opposite way. So how do we honor God, the law is good, and appropriately apply it in our lives? Again, time is short. Look, we can affirm that the law is good. Uh, the ceremonial law has, has been fulfilled in Jesus. We don't read the book of Leviticus as if it's still in application today. It's helpful to us to understand what Jesus was doing, and we still must read it and preach on it, but not to say, let's do that here at Trinity. The civil laws, as the Westminster Confession says, have expired. They're not in effect anymore, though principally we can learn from them. The moral law remains in effect and has been enhanced by Christ Jesus, and we're gonna preach this summer on the Sermon on the Mount, which was Jesus taking the Ten Commandments and making them as full and beautiful and deep and challenging and convicting as anything that's ever been said so that our hearts would change. We can see across the whole swath of Scripture that law and grace operate together. They serve each other. Law is no good without grace, And grace can't function unless we have conviction of what the law of God says. We see that the goodness of the law is bound up in its three aims. Its first aim, when we read it, is to convict us of a sin and point us to the cross. It's to show us where we fall short of the glory of God. That is its salvation purpose. Its second purpose is to help society understand the difference between right and wrong as Christians labor and advocate for those truths. Its third purpose is to teach us to grow in sanctification because we read what the moral law says and we see the holiness of God and we measure our lives against it and we say, I have to aim to please God in that way. And our job as modern Christians, if you're wondering in the end, is we should uphold the moral law as God's measure for righteousness for all. In the end, on the day of judgment, everyone will be judged based upon the moral law, except for Christians who will be judged based upon the blood of Jesus shed for them. And so we, as Christian people, still talk about the law, but we talk about it within the context of a Redeemer who has come to cover our inability to keep this law and to set us free from its debilitating pressure so that we set our eyes on Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith. Our faith is a faith of persuasion, not compulsion. And if we get that wrong, in the modern world we repeat the errors of history. It'll be like me using this thing as a hammer. It doesn't work. You get hurt. And what you're working on doesn't stay together. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning in this uh, unusual moment, just reflecting a bit on what the law is, and how we're to use it and understand it, and the dangers in the modern world of trying to live out our faith. Give us wisdom, Lord. Give us wisdom to be able to discern uh, between these complicated issues. Help us as Christian people to recognize that we're salt and light, and that we're called to be salt and light in society, and that is uh, witnessing to the power and the glory of the gospel in our lives and not forcing people into boxes of obedience. Uh, Teach us how we apply that in these complicated days and grant us your grace to walk according to your will. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.